Good morning. Greetings to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This morning we're in the middle of a series. It's called God's Goals for My Church, and it's also talking about God's goals for me individually. And we're in Ephesians chapter 4. We're talking about spiritual growth and how God would have us grow. The year was 1944. The Japanese sent Lieutenant Hiro Onoda to a small Philippine island during World War II where he was to take his men and perform guerrilla warfare on, in the jungle on that island. Um, he was dropped off by his commanding officer. His commanding officer told him a couple of things. He said, no matter what happens, do not take your own life, ever. Uh, no matter what happens, lead your men, even if it comes down to leading one man. Whatever happens, take out the Air Force Base and take out the pier. We're going to send you help in a couple of weeks to do that. And then he said, and whatever happens, whether it's three years or whether it's five years or more, wait for us and we will come back and rescue you. Well, the weeks went on and Lieutenant Onoda and his men realized that the help to take out the pier and to take out the Air Force Base, that the help wasn't coming. And soon they received these pamphlets. They were being spread across the jungle in villages. They saw the pamphlets that read, the war is over. Stop fighting. Well, they got the pamphlets and they brought them back and they looked at them and they, like, and they, and they said, this is a hoax. This is, this is, they're just trying to draw us out. This isn't true. And so they didn't believe it. October of the same year, 1944, a B-17 bomber flew overhead and dropped similar pamphlets down saying, the war is over, stop fire. Anoda and his men said, it's a hoax. <laughs> they didn't believe it. Um, months went by, years went by, they divided up, their men did, and Anoda and, and three others, a, a band of four, they retreated into the forest even farther and it was there that they started to send out signals, and they recorded people from their home, their families, on recordings, loud, record, record, loud recordings saying, come out, come out, the war is done, come home, it's safe, the, there's peace. Anoda and his men said, it's a hoax. Five years went by until they were in a skirmish over food with a local farmer, and one of Anoda's men was killed. Five years went by, another man surrendered. Twenty more years went by, 30 years after the war was ended. In the mid-1970s, there was yet another skirmish with just Anoda and his other man, and his friend was killed in the skirmish, which raised the suspicion of the authorities on the island. And the authorities on the island said, well, Anoda must be out there still because we saw him fighting in the skirmish. And so they sent an envoy out to him, and the envoy said, we didn't know that you're still here the war is over. It's been over for 30 years now. You can come on out. And Anoda said, it's a hoax. <laughs> he still didn't believe it. He said to the envoy, he said, unless I get the command from my commanding officer to cease fire, I will not stop. And so what did they do? They went to Japan. <laughs> they found an old, old man who was a bookseller now at this time, his commanding officer, and they told him, about Anoda, and they brought him over to the Philippine island, and this man stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with his former soldier, and he told him to cease fire. And finally, Anoda believed. Think about all of the years 
that Anoda lost in his life because of his ignorance. Because he thought that the battle was still going on, even though everybody around him had told him, there is peace, you can come out. Um, the sad part about the story is, is not just his valor and his dedication. The sad part is, is that he lost out on a family life that he could have had back at home for 30 years. It was like he was locked away in a prison of fear and ignorance. He not only hurt himself, he hurt his family that was at home that he could have loved on, that he could have grown close to. He, he, hurt, he hurt people around him in his ignorance. He killed over 30 people in the time that he was doing guerrilla warfare over those 30 years, and he injured hundreds more. Today in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that you and I used to live in ignorance, that we used to be that person. And we didn't even know it at the time, but we were damaging ourselves and we were hurting, not just ourselves, but we were hurting other people as well in our ignorance. And as we go through the series and we talk about God's goals for my church and the God's goals for me, God says this, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be in the dark. I want you rather to be enlightened, to know that you're not living in the dark anymore. And your, your old way of life, it's been hurtful. It's been hurtful to you. It's been hurtful to other people. And if you don't get the truth, you're going to suffer, and you're going to have other people suffer in your life too. This morning, the, the, the scripture from Ephesians 4 says this, verse 17, And I say, and this I say, and solemnly testify to the Lord. Okay, this is Paul talking. One of the last books that he writes is Ephesians, and he's writing to a congregation that he's very familiar with. And it, maybe you've seen those movies before where there's this deathbed moment when uh, this grandfather or this patriarch of the family has something really important, maybe he has the mystery that's going to be revealed, he knows the secret and the whole family gathers around him, it's, the whole plot is turning on this deathbed moment, and his voice gets really quiet and he says, come closer, come closer, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what it is, I'm going to tell you the secret. And the whole family, they, they huddle in and he says, closer, I just have a couple breaths left. And finally, they lean in so far, maybe his son leans in, that he's going to solve the mystery. And finally, the, the, the grandpa, he says, it was Mr. Plum in the library with a candlestick. He says, lean in. Listen, I'm about to tell you the most important thing. I want you to know, this is the last chapter of Ephesians to the people that he loved. And he says this, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Whoa. Paul, what, what's your problem with Gentiles? <laughs> Paul's a Jew. Well, Paul loves Gentiles. He does. And God loves Gentiles too. All throughout history, Old Testament Bible, New Testament Bible, all throughout the Bible stories, there's stories about Gentiles who come to faith that God loves for very dearly. Gentiles are great. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. Gentiles are great. They brought us awesome things and blessings in our world. I mean, they gave us a Western culture, and Gentiles, they give us the Olympics, right? They give us culture, and they give us art, and they brought bacon into the New Testament church. So thank God that God allowed them to do that. The Gentiles are good. But Paul says their history, their knowledge about spirituality is a big, fat zero. He says this, that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They're missing on something. They're not clicking on, on spirituality, and they're missing out on a whole bunch of spiritual growth. 
They didn't have the Old Testament scriptures that the Jewish, Jewish people did. They didn't have the promises to Abraham that Abraham and his family would be a great nation and all nations would be blessed through him. They didn't have the promises to Moses that God would raise up a great prophet. They didn't have the promise to David that there would be a king and his kingdom would go on forever and ever. They didn't have any of that. And so they were stumbling around like a blind person that didn't know that they were blind. They thought they had the right ideas, but there are, all, all of their ideas were flopping. The closest thing Gentiles at this time had towards spirituality was probably philosophy. And one of the philosophers of their day that was really popular during Paul's time, actually came about 300 years before Paul, his name was Epicurus. Has anybody ever in a college class, a college philosophy class, heard of Epicurus before the Epicurean people or philosophy? And many times we, we say this, and this is what they're famous for, at least popularly. We say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, some people have had to have heard that. People attest that to Epicurus, but that's actually not true. That's not what he would say. He was a lot smarter and a lot deeper than that. Epicurus and the popular philosophy of that time would say this. If there are gods... Up there, you know, Greek mythology, and they're messing around with people, and they're, they're, they're putting uh, salt in your uh, coffee, or they're messing around with your drive to work, or, they're, or, or they're, they're, they're telling you a way to live, or they're dictating truth to you. If there are gods up there that are controlling this whole cosmos, this whole universe, if they are up there, then you truly cannot be happy because you cannot make any of your own choices. In other words, they limit your happiness if God or gods are up there. On the flip side, Epicurus would say something like this, but if there is no God or there are no gods above us that are manipulating our lives and controlling this universe, if, they, if there are no, none of that, then you truly can choose for yourself what is truth because they're not dictating it to you. And you can choose for yourself how you want to be happy because you're not accountable to a God or to God's or any moral standard. So you can hit delete on God and the menu of options for your happiness is going to expand and multiply because you've deleted God out of the equation. In other words, without God, you're going to be truly happy. With God, you can't be happy at all. And you say, well, pastor, that was back then. That was like in 300 B.C., we live in 21st century America. Is that true of today? Really? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard anybody say this? They say, the motto of life, the reason that we exist is to find what makes you happy and to not hurt other people. Have you ever heard that before? The motto, my, the goal of life is to not hurt anybody, but choose for yourself what is right and pursue that. That's what Epicurus would say. That is what Paul would say are the darkened in their understanding, alienated from life of God because the ignorance that is, is them, that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have been callous and been given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here's our problem with that phrase, which is the zeitgeist of the time. Live like you want to, define truth for yourself, and don't hurt other people. The problem, where this runs into a buzzsaw, is that truth is a lot more important than how you define it or I define it. Because you might define truth one way, and I might define it another way, but at some point, we can't go round and round this merry-go-round 
At some point, there has to be absolute truth about an issue. The problem runs in when, when I define truth the way that I want to define it, and you define it your way, and I'm going to find freedom in what I want, and you're going to find freedom in what you want, and we're both going to try to coexist with each other and be happy all the time. Well, guess what? My truth and my freedom might impo- impose on yours, and yours might on mine. Truth is a lot more important than we think, and freedom is a lot more complicated than we think. Back then, they might say, well, my body is telling me I want to give in to the sexual pleasure because that would feel good, that, that, that would be right. That's a choice, and that's truth to that person. But what about the consequences? What if I would give in to that, and I would say, I'm going to treat my body however I want? The sensuality, Paul says. What if, what if I want to get pleasure, not from uh, my spouse, but I want to get it from a computer screen and pornography? That, to me, is truth. I'm not hurting anybody, am I? Well, are you hurting somebody? You're hurting that oneness in that relationship, and you're hurting that person on the other side of the screen. <laughs> That's a slave to sin for money. It's, it doesn't hold up. You can't have it your own way and not hurt other people. Or maybe I'm not happy with my parents, or my parents' policies are bad, or, or I think uh, it was not fun living underneath my parents' rules And so I delete God and I say, God, at least your word about honor your father and mother that it may go well with you, I don't want to believe that and so I'm going to dishonor my parents even though he's given you your parents because they have so much knowledge, they have so much wisdom about the world that they want to bless you and they want the best for you. See how your freedom, quote freedom, is imposing on your truth and your truth is imposing on your freedom, it doesn't line up. I've always wanted, growing up, maybe I was 10 or 11 years old, but I saw the races, the horse races, the Belmont Stakes, the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby, and I always thought to myself, that would be so awesome if I could get on one of those horses when I grow up. I want to grow up to be a jockey. And then, just last August, I realized something. I'm 30 years old, six foot four, and 250 pounds. Now, what if I, now this is getting back to the point, what if I thought it was true that I need to be a jockey? What if I, in my life today, with a wife and kids, said to myself, I'm going to pursue, because I think this is what truth is, I'm going to pursue being a jockey. I'm going to work every day to ride a horse. I'm going to do all I can to to bust my tail to be a jockey. Is that going to happen? Never. In fact, I'm going to probably end up ruining my family life. I'm probably going to end up at a dead end, because I never can get there. Do you see how freedom is a lot more complex I'm actually not setting myself free when I define my own truth. I'm actually restricting myself. I'm restricting myself and I'm restricting those people around me. If you think that freedom is walking around on a sidewalk and you go to a river or a lake and you pull out fish and start putting them on sidewalks because you think that's what freedom is, (laughs) you're restricting their freedom and you're restricting their life. We do the same thing with sin. We think that it's great and we think it's this release, but we are actually restricting ourselves and we're hurting people around us. Okay, so truth is more important. There is truth. There has to be absolute truth. Otherwise, we'd all run around this carousel trying to figure out what truth is. Freedom is a lot more restrictive than we think. If you truly want to be free, you have to have your head on about what freedom really is. A fish doesn't walk on the ground, and Pastor Dan will never ride a horse around the Belmont Stakes. But this is the, uh, the, the awesome thing about the Christian faith and where Christ comes in. Christ is more free than you and I realize. 
He meets us at this point when we find these, at these dead ends that my truth isn't lining up and I find myself at a dead end hurting other people and being hurt, giving into sensuality and stealing and, and being greedy. And then he comes in and he confronts you. And he says, hold on. That's hurting you. Stop that. That's hurting other people. He says, and I forgive you for doing that. It says this, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Oh, is that an awesome phrase? That's not what Christ is about. You know what? Christ isn't about a guy that comes down and manipulates and moves things around and puts salt in your uh, coffee and puts roadblocks on your way to work and puts restrictions on your life. Actually, the Bible talks about Christ as the exact opposite. He meets you when you find the dead end. And then he says, I give you a way out. He did that even though he was rich and free and had um, liberties. He had all the liberties in the world. He's God. This is the amazing thing about our God. He had everything to be happy, but instead he humbled himself, it says in Ephesians chapter, uh, Philippians chapter 2, to become obedient to death to set you free. Wow. All of a sudden, this God that I think is so restrictive on my freedoms has actually set me free to grow in grace, has set me free from the things that hurt me and other people, and he's the one and he's the forerunner that did it by putting out his arms on the cross, confronting me and saying, stop, I've ended your sin right here, and I've given you life forever. There's a battle going on inside of each and every one of us, believers, one side of that battle wants to believe in Jesus, and the other side of that battle wants to say, not true. It's the old man versus the new man. The old man wants to call God a liar, and all the promises in God's word that you've been set free, he wants to slam the door shut on. God has created in you a new man when he gives you Christ, when he gives you in your waters of baptism the forgiveness of sins and a new life, and then he says in his word that you put off that old self. Because if you go back to that old self, you're a slave again. But he says here, but that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's saying there is absolute truth, and this truth isn't a restrictive truth. It's a truth that sets you free, remember? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, he says, don't go back to your slavery. You've been set free. And so grow in faith and grow in the spirit that God has given you, the spirit of freedom and forgiveness. There's this story um, of an old Cherokee grandfather who was told in his tribe to mediate a case between two fighting adults. They had an argument, and it was disrupting the whole tribe, and so finally this grandpa is called upon this wise man in the tribe to mediate it, and he does. He mediates the case, and everything is good, and then that night his grandchildren are sitting around the campfire with grandpa, and they know that he's done this great thing, and they're like, yeah, our, our hero grandpa, he solved the case, this wise man in our family. And one of the little girls at the campfire asks grandpa, Grandpa, why is it that people hurt each other and people fight? And the Cherokee man replied to his granddaughter. He said, inside of each and every one of us, there are two wolves. One is a black wolf and one is a white wolf, and they both live in our chest, and they fight against each other. And the 
the children, they said, well, what, is he, what are they fight about? What are they fighting over? And he says, one wolf, the black wolf, he is full of anger. He is full of deceit. He is full of pride. And he's full of himself. The other wolf, the white wolf, he is full of integrity and goodness and graciousness and love and faith. The little girl that asked the question originally, she said, well, Grandpa, who wins the fight? And Grandpa replied shortly, the one that you feed the most. God has created in you his son, Jesus Christ, and he's made you in his image. And inside of each and every one of us, there is a battle that goes on. The battle that goes on is a fight between your new self and your old self. And my question to you today is this, who are you feeding? (laughs) Think about it this way. Where, first of all, where do you feed the black wolf in your life? And each and every one of us have our own demons and we have our own old ways of life that we go back to again and again. Now let's answer this question. Where does that wolf like to live? And how does he like to feed? What circumstances do you put yourself in that make that wolf feed more and more? Jesus is on the cross. God's gift, he chose us through Jesus. And he says, don't choose to feed that wolf. Don't choose to go to that place again if it's a physical location. Don't choose to put yourself in that situation again because I've chosen you. And you can choose not to feed that wolf Don't go back to the slavery. At the same time, he's asking us, when we're talking about spiritual growth, he's he's asking us, how are you feeding the white wolf? How are you feeding yourself with the things that you have become, that Jesus has made you, and he wants you to conform into his image by where do you find the goodness and the graciousness and the forgiveness that God has made you to be and do? Where's the physical location? Is it a church building? Is it in a home at a connect group? Is it in private devotion with your family or by yourself where you feed the white wolf and you feed on what the Savior has said to you, I forgive you again and again and again. And you might be saying to yourself, I keep going back to the old ways and I, keep, I feel like I haven't defeated that black wolf. Well, Jesus says, I've defeated him for you. And when you fall back and you say, how can I defeat this black wolf in my life? Then, then Jesus says, Choose to continue to believe in me. I brought you to faith through my Holy Spirit. Now you choose to be around the places where my Spirit wants to forgive you and bless you. When you fall again, choose to believe that Jesus does forgive you because he has. Choose to believe that Jesus fights for you because he has and he will. And he won't stop. Have you seen the movie Inside Out, anybody? Has it been up on the screen? Is it up on the screen right now? Okay. Anybody seen this movie before? All right. I think there's about five characters up there. I saw it at Christmas, around Christmas time. The plot of the story is this, that there's uh, five characters. Each one of them are living in this little girl's brain, and this little girl's being controlled by these five feelings, these five emotions. One of them is named, the one with her hands up like this. Do you remember her name, anybody? Joy. Okay, very good. You've seen this movie. Do you know who's uh, on the floor, obviously, who would always be moping around on the floor? Sadness, Right. Okay, the one to, I, I can't remember these two's names. Is it sar, is that sarcasm? The one next to disgust. Okay, and the one out to the far left? 
Fear. All right. And then the one to the right, I remember this guy because my son, he was making out invitations and they were all, or Valentine's this week, and all five of them were on there. He is uh, anger. And they would take turns at the control panel. And each one of them would take control of, of the girl's emotions at a certain time, and it would be losing her mind uh, over getting angry, and it would be uh, extreme joy, and it would be disgust, and it would be sarcasm at times, until some key core memories get lost, and joy and sadness leave the control panel to the other three, and they go out to search for these core memories. It's complete chaos, it's a mess. It reminds me of being lost in a jungle for 30 years, not knowing who you are, not knowing what is truth. But then, in the end, everybody's restored. Joy comes back. So does sadness. Jesus, when it says that he has chosen you and that you are, have a choice to grow spiritually, you have a Savior that's in the control room, in your heart and in your head. And he, the one that went to a woman at the well, and forgave her and encouraged her not to live that life that she used to live sleeping around with other men. He is in control. That Savior who died for you, who chose you from the beginning of time, he is in control at the control panel of your life. He's the same one that called uh, Zacchaeus out of a tree for stealing. And he says, I forgive you and I want you to grow spiritually. I want you to believe my promise, and I want you to sin no more. And Zacchaeus gave back all that he owed and even more. When we pray for spiritual growth in this series, and individually as well, we're praying not for us to do more, to be a better person. We're actually praying that Jesus open up our eyes to see that he's trying to bless us. He's trying to give us and give us grace when we come around his word so that we can feed the white wolf. My prayer this morning, then, is that we identify those areas, and you can do it this week, where you feed that black wolf and where you feed that, that white wolf. Where, in the end, do you find yourself hearing the promises of God? Where do you find yourself recognizing the greatness that, that Jesus is and his forgiveness is in your life? At home, at work, at worship, everywhere. And feed on his grace. Amen.